Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. When I was your age, television was called books. After a few weeks, Pig said that if Diamond wanted a per permanent traveling partner, he was up for it. Diamond said, yeah, although only a few states still allowed steer roping, and Pig had to cover long, empty ground, his main territory in the livestock country of Oklahoma, Wyoming, Oregon, and New Mexico. But Pig knew a hundred dirt road shortcuts, steering them through scab land and slope country, in and out of the tiger shits, over the tawny plain still grooved with pilgrim wagon ruts, into early darkness and the first storm laying down black ice, hard orange dawn, the world smoking, snaking dust devils on bare dirt, heat boiling out of the sun until the paint on the truck hood curled, ragged webs of dry rain that never hit the ground, through small town traffic and stock on the road, Band of horses in the morning fog. Two red-headed cowboys moving a house that filled the roadway and Pake busting around and into the ditch to get past, leaving junkyards and Mexican cafes behind, turning into midnight motel entrances with ring office bell signs or steering into the, onto the black prairie for a stunned hour of sleep. That friends and listeners is a little taste of the vigorous prose of Annie Pruel, who is going to be the focus of episode 46 of the book exchange podcast, which you are listening to right now. Thank you for joining us. This is one of our episodes that takes a deep dive into the work of a particular writer could be from anywhere, any gender, any country of origin. Today, I'm very excited to say once again that our subject is Annie Pruel, an American writer uh, who writes beautiful descriptions of landscapes, writes about the American experience, the American West, the experience of immigrants in the United States and other countries, as well as with a keen eye and heart really uh, towards the landscape that we all call home in our environment. So that is our subject for today. That is my long-winded introduction, but I wanted to give you a taste of, of what, it, what it feels like to read Annie Pruel, and we're going to be talking a lot about it in the next hour and a half or so. And so with that, I welcome my co-host at long last, Jude Lovell from the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. Jude, hope you're still there. I think that I am. Hey, John. Well, that's hey, good. everybody. Yeah, it's good to be on, John. That was some that was some uh, choice meat pros there. And um, John, let's figure this out from the last episode because we talked about this last episode. Is it Pruel or is it Prue? Her lawyers are going to be all over us. <laughs> did I did I literally just say Pruel again? I probably did. 
twice, but I, 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 we can't, neither one of us can get this right. I mean, maybe it's one of these things where both are right. Unbelievable. Well, anybody who's been following this podcast knows that we've been tripping over this. And so why, why change now? But right. for the record, the correct pronunciation, we'll try to get it right as we go through this. It's funny that we keep screwing it up. Is Annie Prue. Um, and this is one, I didn't say, this is one of our episodes that we call a dealer's choice. And all that means is that we choose a particular author that we, that we both admire and want to recommend to listeners. And, uh, we haven't done one in quite a while. Uh, was TC Boyle the last one we did? Yeah, I actually went back, John, and looked this up. This is only our third. I feel like we've done more. So the first one was Jim Shepard going all the way back to, I think it's 12 or 13. Somewhere in there. And then T.C. Boyle was episode 22. So not only are we overdue, but it's only our third. And this is our first on a, a woman, a female writer. So that's great. Yeah, so that's great. And we like her so much, we can't pronounce her name. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go at length into why we both feel that Annie Prue is someone, frankly, to put it bluntly, you should be reading if you're not. And obviously not everyone will agree with that. Uh, but um, we're going to get into her work quite a bit here. So that is our subject for episode 46. Again, glad you're along for the ride. And um, we're going to, there's not, I don't think there's much sort of administratively that we need to say. So we may just dive right into, you know, our usual opening segment, which is what we've been reading. Is there, is there anything I'm forgetting that you want to throw in there? I don't think so. Just make sure you use our email address or check out our site if you want to get in touch with us. But no, I think we're good. All right. Well, Without further ado, then, what have you been reading lately? What can you tell us about? Well, it's real interesting, John. Right, right now, right now, I want to talk a lot about the book that I just finished, but I'm just, like I said a couple episodes ago, I'm just going to stick to the format here. So we'll save that. That will come up in another future episode, though, um, for reasons we'll get into later. The book I'm reading right now actually is also prep for, I, I think, the next episode. So this is like days of the tease. But anyway, um, the novel is, it's, it's a novel that I'm reading, and it is called Loris. Um, and it is a uh, translated, it's a contemporary novel, not set in contemporary times, but it's uh, from a contemporary Russian novelist. Named, I'm not going to mess this up, but it's Eugene Vodolazkin, or Volodotskin. I might be mixing up the L and the D, but it's something like that, uh, Eugene Volodotskin, I want to say. Um, I probably have that wrong, but that should be a theme anyway. But anyway, um, it uh, it's a book of, that's set in medieval times, set in the 1400s, um, and it's called Loris, L-U-R-U-S, and it's about this, uh, this uh, orphan who uh, basically is raised by his grandfather early in the book. It's set in, uh, in Russia. Um, and he's um, his grandfather is like a renowned uh, like herbalist, I guess you'd call it like a, a healer, kind of like a little bit of a, a combo of like a witch doctor and like an herbalist and a healer, somebody who who does things with plants. But he also seems to have a little bit of a sort of a supernatural quality to his healing. And he's well known for healing. So people come from miles around to see him. And in the beginning of the book, the, the young boy who's the main character um he, his parents die tragically and he goes to live with his grandfather like in this cabin in the woods 
and um, the grandfather raises him basically to teaches him everything he knows, including um, his extensive bookshelf and teaches him how to read. And then the grandfather dies and the, the young man at the time, very young, sort of sets off on this uh, quest to travel around Russia and Europe and different parts far and wide um, across a couple of continents, healing people and just encountering strange things all taking place in the 1400s in uh, you know the Russian and European landscape. And it's a very kind of uh, dense, as you might expect from a Russian novelist, but um, sort of wondrous and kind of and a really fascinating book so far. It has some spiritual overtones and it has like a lot of magical realism. I said to you privately that the thing that it kind of most of is a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I mean that in the most complimentary fashion possible. Um, and that, that, so that's the book. And the only other thing I would mention is that I, I was very unfamiliar with this writer. I just stumbled across this title. Um, but we happened to be uh, prepping for an, an episode. We'll talk about it later. That has to do with spiritual journeys. So this looks like a, a novel that has has one. And also of note, uh, this writer, Eugene, starts with the V, happens to have been born and educated and raised in the Ukraine. But um, he's, I, you know, he's known as a Russian novelist. And I don't know if he lives in Russia, but he's of Ukrainian, um, you know, uh, ancestry. So that's just kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, I'm sure that he's not too, I'm sure he doesn't approve of what's going on in his country right now, tragically. So anyway. That's what I'm reading, and uh, what are you reading? Yeah, good, good time to be reading um, something from the Ukraine, I guess, um, in a small gesture of support there. But that book sounds absolutely fascinating. We've been talking a little bit about it sort of off air, and uh, you were telling me about it, not one I was familiar with. So... Uh, not only does it seem perfect for our nef- next episode, which, as you said, more on that later, but uh, it just, just sounds like a fascinating book. And, you know, your early comments, let's just say they're not dissuading me from being interested or wanting to go grab that book. So that's awesome. Um, well, what I'm reading is actually I'm, I'm uh, one of Annie Prue's books, which I've been reading for the show. It's one of one of the books that I haven't read. Um, which we're going to kind of get into a little bit, you know, what we have and haven't read. But I'll just say now that um, I'm currently in the middle of one of her novels called Accordion Crimes. Um, and since we're going to be talking about her work, we'll get in, we'll get into it a little bit later. Um, but, you know, it was kind of the last thing I was trying to catch up with before we recorded this episode. Couldn't quite get it done, but I'm writing it right in the middle of it. And um, needless to say, I'm greatly enjoying enjoying it but we're going to get into that as i said a little bit later so that's what i'm reading and i think without without further ado we'll just take a quick break here and we'll just dive right in uh to the work of any proof all right let's do it
All right, Jude. I hope you're ready. I, I just want to I want to set the table here as we've done in the in the previous episodes uh, that we've done dealer's choice episodes, which, as you said, has not been that many. Feels like we've done more. You're right. Uh, just say a little bit about Annie Prue, who she is, where she's from, that sort of thing. In case I think, you know, I would venture to say that the majority of readers in this country anyway, and probably many others, would at least recognize the name. Annie Prue, uh, as far as writers can, she's become something of a household name, primarily on the strength of her, of her two sort of best-known works, one of which is a novel one of which is a short story, I would say. You know, you could debate what her best known is, but I think I think these two are the best. And, and you know, they were both aided in that quite a bit in their popularity and kind of recognition by the fact that they were both adapted into films. And I'm talking about her novel, The Shipping News, which came out, I think, in 1993 and was, was really a breakthrough for her, but we'll cover her writing career in just a second. Um, and also the story Brokeback Mountain, which is a short story. Um, she's written many short stories, which we'll get into. Um, but that was adapted into a, a well-known movie about a uh, relationship, a homosexual relationship between two, um, not cowboys. And, and I, you know, I've been doing my background reading and listening to a couple podcasts, and she's very adamant about the fact that they're, they were portrayed as cowboys in the film, and that's how people know them. But she's emphatic on the point that they were not cowboys, Yeah, that they were that they worked with sheep um, and that's a totally different thing. So that's, that sort of maybe as a hint of the kind of nuance and, you know, that she brings to her work. Uh, but it's just sort of an interesting little side note, but Brokeback Mountain, Chipping News, the works that she's most well known for other works that she's well known for would be according crimes, as I just said, and she's written three volumes of stories all set in Wyoming We've talked about them many times in previous episodes. We're going to get into them again today in a little bit more detail. So uh, three books of short stories uh, that are all set in Wyoming that are just fascinating. Annie Prue is from, uh, she's, she's in her 80s. She's been writing for a long time, but actually started in, in terms of publishing. She started late in her life. You know, she was well into her 40s, I think, when she first started publishing, writing. And, you know, some people know, some people may not. She started kind of publishing books that were nonfiction, that were about like gardening and making apple cider, believe it or not. Uh, she, she spent the first part of her life in New England. She's lived in Vermont for a long time. She lived in Maine. She was born in Connecticut. Um, and her parents, or at least on her father's side, her father was a French Canadian named Georges Napoleon Prue. So that's, how's that for a name? Uh, so she's got, you know, French Canadian blood, which does factor into at least one of her books later on, a book, a, a huge novel called Barkskins. Um, she lived in Vermont for many, many years. And then uh, she her first novel, which was called Postcards, correct me if I'm wrong, Postcards, was set in Vermont. And I think was published to some acclaim, but not really a huge hit. And uh, that was followed up by a book called Heart Songs, I believe. Do I have that order right? Yes. Yeah. And that's a collection of stories, I think. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, but it really, her third novel was The Shipping News, which is a quirky story that's set in Newfoundland, way up north, northeast Canada. And that was a huge breakthrough, not only a huge commercial success, 
but uh, also won her the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. So that was now, really John, Yeah. John, was that her third novel or was that her second novel and her third book? And I'm asking book. not – okay, because I'm asking not to correct you, but because I never could get down the chronology with uh, the book you mentioned earlier, Accordion Crimes and the Shipping News. So I was actually asking because I need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so Accordion Crimes is actually her follow-up novel right after Shipping News. Came out, okay. about three, came out about three years later. And somewhere in that period, she moves out to – to Wyoming, where she lived for many decades. And from living out there, that's where the three volumes of Wyoming stories come from. And um, like I said, she's now she lives, I think, in the in the Seattle, Washington area or not Seattle proper, but in in that general region. And she's still writing. She's actually set to come out with a book that I, I really tried to find some information. I, and there's really very little out there about it but she's apparently at work on a heart well she may be done with it uh on a non-fiction book uh about the environment called fen bog and swamp a short history of peatland destruction and its role in the climate crisis so that's a bit of a mouthful but mm -hmm. um this this it's this is a book that you know it's it's posted up on amazon it's got a description it says it's supposed to be out in september of this year but that's literally all i could find about it so anyway, that's that's a bit about Annie Prue, and I don't I don't know if you want to add anything biographical uh, or any other information to that. And and what we'll do is talk about why we wanted to focus an episode on her. Um, but is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, not a lot. I guess I would say I was just sort of researching along the way, like you were, and just other points of interest. Is she? Um, her mother was a painter, um, mm. and maybe maybe her dad was too, but at least her mother was a painter. So she grew up in an artistic household um, with lots of uh, tolerance or um, encouragement of artistic ex expression. And um, she also, I know she moved around quite a bit as a kid, you know, uh, to different places in New England, and um, they were always moving and and sometimes they lived in really um, dilapidated circumstances and other times they lived in better circumstances. And I, I get the impression that, you know, her father's uh, business career or whatever was very sporadic, hit and miss, you know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I don't know a lot about her relationship with her father or her mother. I don't think it was all really warm, but, you know, I'd just be speculating there. But, yeah, she she. There's not a lot of travel like she's, you know, she's consistent to today about um, talks a lot about her wanderlust and sort of a sense of dissatisfaction with being in one place at one time. And we'll get into some of that stuff, too. But, yeah, no, it's a pretty good recap. Yeah. And also, you know, and this is, you know, not to delve too much into her personal life, but she has been married and divorced three times. She has four children. And, you know, it's just sort of with what you just said, I mean, it's interesting to sort of speculate that, you know, there is there does seem to be sort of a rest, restlessness within her that she can't she doesn't apparently like to stay in one place for too long a time. And she's just also re always been really drawn to like rugged landscapes. And that's important to note, too, the one to mention is that when she, first of all, her her 
when she was first published, she was published under the name E.A. Prue. And number one, her, her actual name is Edna Ann. So it's a, understandable maybe why she goes by Annie. <laughs> uh, so that's number one. Not No knock on somebody who's named Edna, but it's just kind of an older sounding name. But um, And she started when she started publishing, you know, uh, regularly, she 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 spent a lot of time outdoors. She's she for a long time in her life. She was a, a, you know, a a vigorous outdoorsman or outdoors woman and has done a ton of camping and just living on the land. And so she started publishing primarily in like nature journals, magazines like outdoors. And she's commented many times at the time, you know, uh, these the the readership of these magazines were mainly men the editors basically didn't didn't want to publish her name as a woman's name so they insisted that she publish as ea prue and that was just at the time that was just you know she just sort of took that and ran with it um and her stories got to be popular in these uh, nature and outdoorsy type magazines but it took a while for people to realize that, that it was a woman writing them. So that's so that's interesting. And then she eventually started publishing books as E. Annie Prue. And then finally, she says in her own words, she just got tired of writing the E. So she just dropped it. And now she publishes as Annie Prue. So that's kind of an interesting uh, trajectory or evolution and how she's, you know, even down to the name that she's published under. Well, one thing she certainly gives the impression of is if she's tired of something and she ain't going to dither with it anymore, that's for sure. Yeah, you read you read interviews with her now and, and, and she comes across sort of curmudgeonly and you sit and you sort of say, well, she's in her 80s. But, you know, it's not that it's not her age. It's just she's very matter of fact. And she you know says what she thinks. And if she's tired of something, she'll let you know that she's kind of known for this type of a of straightforward personality maybe maybe easy to rankle a little bit um but uh and that sort of comes through in the flavor of her writing too it's very she's not a sentimental writer let's put it that way absolutely not no (laughs) right and and with that so i want to spend a little time and this is where dude you get a chance to reflect a little bit on why we're doing this episode you know why do we feel that Annie Prue is worth, you know, taking a really intensive look at. And I know we've both talked before about books of hers that we've really enjoyed. And, you know, we may be repeating ourselves a little bit, but, uh, you know, this is where we talk about why we really want to recommend her as somebody that readers should check out. So why don't you share some thoughts on that question? Well, um, yeah, thanks. Um, so Jim Shepard, the first writer that we did a dealer's choice on way back when, like I mentioned earlier, one of the things that he's done in his career is he edited this anthology with our, another favorite of ours, Ron Hansen. And the book is called You've Got to Read This, you mm-hmm. know, like, and I think that, you know, for us, I don't want to speak for you, but when we do these, at least in my mind, when we do these dealer's choice episodes, it's not just, you know, here we're going to talk about one of our favorite writers. It's more like what you suggested earlier, like you've got to read this writer you know and and so part of it for me is just kind of like trying to say to whoever's listening to this like you know it's as you said earlier john like if you're not if you haven't read her you know we think you really should and then so mm-hmm. i just want to that's where we're coming from and, and your question is more like why do we think we really should and you know when, and we'll get into this as we unpack some of her works but 
for, so we might have different reasons or slightly different reasons, John, you know, which is consistent with these, you know, with these shows and with these conversations. I mean, for me, like, you know, like it's not going to surprise you for me to say, you know, reason number one is just the incredible uh, writing, you know, like she, she is, you know, that we talk all the time about great writers. She's one of the best, you know, that I think we have in the United States, just in terms of the craft. Like, and we'll, I have some examples I'll share later, and I'm sure you have some too, but, you know, so it's not just that she, you know, well, I'll get into another reason in a minute, but it's not just that she's kind of, you know, made to take on, you know, rough stuff or, you know, or, or it's not just about that she chooses exotic and, you know, really harsh landscapes to write about. All those things kind of help, but her writing by itself is just, you know, kind of a marvel. And I, th and she seems to have had it from the very beginning. You know, um, yeah. I was, you know, recently rereading the shipping news, which we'll talk about, which, as you said, is one of her earlier books. And I was just kind of struck by so many different sentences and paragraphs. And she's just gifted, you know, and I think just for me as a as a writer, you know, reading her is kind of kind of feels essential. You know, and that's what I was experiencing as I got more into her work, because I was like, this is somebody who can, you know, I'm just going to try to, like, get those osmosis or that those residual benefits from reading somebody like this. But the other thing I would say why I really think she's important to read, um, and then I'll let you take this question on, it's related but not quite the same thing. I think Annie Prue is, I mean, a lot you could say most fiction writers or a lot of fiction writers are like this, but for me, she's really about kind of like the truth. And by that, I mean, not things as they ought to be or things as we sort of dream like they're going to be like, if you read any proof, you're going to get the, the, the marrow and the tissue and the saliva and the guts of life and living. And so I think she's a real kind of truth teller. She's, and I don't, I think she's not interested in, you know, writing in a way that doesn't adhere to the way things actually are. So when you read her, you get a sense, it's often really difficult. It can be really harsh, can be really cruel, but you, you get this sense from reading her that like, she's just giving you life the way it is. And actually, when you think about it, like a lot of our reading and a lot of writers don't necessarily do that all the time. Annie Prue does, you know, you're going to get life warts and all when you yeah. read Annie Prue. So that is, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I'll turn it over. Yeah. I, I didn't let you finish your thought there. Did you have something else you wanted to say? No, actually uh, that was the end of my thought. Like you're just going to get things as they are, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that's a great, way to say it i think that's a great point um and that is where a lot of the value is and it, it's connected to what i said about her being a very a, a, an unsentimental writer but what i mean by that is kind of what you just said <laughs> you know i don't mean just you know there aren't like mushy love scenes or you know uh you know it, it means a lot more than that that she she's willing to look at things and 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 describe them exactly as they are and, and certainly willing to dive into people's you know, pain and people's struggles. And uh, Annie Prue to me is, is just an amazing combination of elements, all of which I find, you know, of high value. Um, she's got a degree in history, number one, which is interesting to, to point out. She's, she said that uh, she had no interest in teaching. But 
when you when you read any Prue in almost any any uh, iteration, you know, or any any one of her books, you're getting a really fascinating mix of you know history and also human cultures. Um, in particular, you know, so most of her books are set primarily in the United States or in and around the United States. Um, and what is the United States, if not, you know, the proverbial melting pot, you know, and if you're, if you're diving into the history of any region of the United States, you're going to be diving into the history of immigration and different pool, different um, peoples, different races, different cultures. And you get that in so much of her work and it, it comes up again and again, um, not just work that, that is actually quote unquote historical fiction, but even if it, you know, is set in the current day, like something like uh, the shipping news, you know, she got, she always gets into the peoples that populate a certain region where they come from, who are the indigenous people, you know, uh, she pays particular attention to indigenous people in many of her works, in particular, the massive novel Barkskins, but it comes up in, in, um, the shipping news it comes up in courting crimes, you know, so you're getting an interesting mix of human culture and history, but she also, and you get that, that realism. She's got a, she's got, I would call her writing. This will probably come up again and again, but the word that just always pops into my mind, she's just a very muscular writer. Her, her descriptions of the earth and the landscape, they're just very visceral and you just feel you can almost feel on your skin and like in a tangible way, what she's writing about, whether it's the wind or the dust or, or the, uh, the muck of a swamp land or a bog land. Uh, she just has a real uh, keen sense and ability to convey what a landscape looks, smells, feels like, tastes like almost. And that is something that comes up again and again in her writing, you know, it came up a little bit in the passage I read in the beginning Um but, uh, and then the last thing I'd say is she has a wicked sense of humor. You know, she's got yes. a, lot, a lot of writers who, you know, uh, write in sort of a realistic fashion and they don't shy away from the truth, whether it's, you know, um, has to do with human struggle or hu uh, loneliness or sexuality or whatever it is. She laces it with just realistic wry humor and so you're often, at least I often am belly laughing in some of these stories and novels that are about, about, you know, hard stuff, but she just, she just, you know, a lot of people who are very, very funny, they just, they, it's because they have, they, they're able to look at the world and kind of tell it, tell it like it is. <laughs> and you get that very, very vividly in any, it's a wonderful combination of, you know, aesthetic beauty, her descriptions of the landscape um, that, again, you can make you almost smell and taste and feel what she's describing. And just a realism that dives into what makes us all connected as human beings combined with, you know, just a, 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 a very funny sense of humor. That right down to the, it's, if anybody's read Annie Prue knows that she has some of the most hilarious and recognizable character names that of anybody I've ever seen, you know, she's almost like somebody like Mark Twain in that regard. She is, her character names are just hilarious. And, you know, I've written down a whole list of them and maybe we can get into that a little bit later, but you know, um, you know, uh, 
even the names of her characters are funny. So you're getting this great mix of, you know, visceral and muscular prose and also a lot of humor um, that I, I feel is really unique. So uh, these are just some of the reasons why, you know, uh, I think we would both, you know, highly recommend people try her stories or novels. Yeah, it's interesting with the names. I, you may have come across this too, but in one interview I saw with her, I watched videos and I read some articles and whatnot, like probably similarly to you, but really quickly regarding the names, you know, somebody asked her about the character names and she said, I, I find this interesting. Um, I, I've been working on a short story recently with a lot of people in it that aren't necessarily like, you know, important characters, but, you know, mm -hmm. I, for me, like naming is a kind of a struggle in a weird business. Like I, I sort of just go with whatever sort of, I know how hokey this sounds, but whatever kind of floats to me on the wind, you know, but she, you know, and I'm always kind of interested in uh, how other readers approach it, other writers approach it, um, particularly with fiction. But she said in one interview that she keeps this log, this running log specifically for, for character names. And she got real specific about it. Like she, you know, she'll find, she likes to find the quirky names as as you were sort of alluding to. And then, but she does, she refuses to take any names that was like used by, you know, somebody else had it, you know, two or three centuries ago. So she takes uh, surnames from one weird name she'll run into and combine it with a first name from another one. And then she'll, and sh so she finds them from like a lot of the times from historical record, but she mixes and mashes them and she keeps this running tab regardless of what she's working on. You know, she just kind of has this. <laughs> I would, it would be interesting to see, like, who knows, maybe it's like 300 pages of names, you know, and she kind of hinted, you know, that uh, most of them will never get used, but I just keep the, and then she goes to them and just takes some of the names out of them, which I think is interesting. I, I don't do that, so. No, it's definitely interesting, and I, you know, I heard her say something about that, too, and she actually has a friend of hers who, like, I don't know, scowls, like, court records or something and, and just sends to her randomly, like, just weird or interesting or hilarious sounding names. And she adds them to the list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really it, interesting. Yeah. And again, you know, um, uh, I, I was going to say something that just flew out of my, flew out of my head. Um, so sorry about that folks. But since we're talking about the names, I got to read a couple of them. I, I wrote down a whole list of them, but um, you know, just anybody who's read anything from any proof is going to recognize the character names, you know, I mean, we're talking. So these are just some of the names in the in the novel, The Shipping News. You have you have you know some gems like there's a guy named Diddy Shovel, and then of course the snotty uh, uh, journalist who's you know hails from England named B. Bowfield Nutbeam. <laughs> I mean, and then you know the main love interest for the the main character is called Coil. She, I don't think you ever learn his first name. He's always called Coil. Um. And which is interesting in itself, but he falls in love with a woman, sort of falls in love with a woman named Wavy Prouse. <laughs> so, but I mean, if you mind the Wyoming stories, you get, I mean, there are gems all over the place in, in that, in that rock, like Creel Zmudzinski, Orion Horncrackle, Reverend Jeffer J. Pecker, <laughs> Decker Mel, <laughs> Fiesta Punch, Budge Wolfscale. Coot McNitt, Condor Fig, Wiregrass Cokendall, that's one of my favorites, 
<laughs> Lobit Pulvertoft. <laughs> Can't even say this one without laughing. Lobit Pulvertoft Thurkill <laughs> and fly fly by Amendinger. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on. There's so many funny uh, you know character names. Ribeye Kluk. I mean, it's just it's hilarious. I got I got two two only two to add. Uh, well, technically three. Pastor and his wife Marva from one story, and then and then there's these stories about later that are a bit uh, funnier. But the 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 sort of the guide for the stories, and there are two of them. Is named Dwayne Fork, and that's not that funny, but it is when when I get to them, you'll see why it is Dwayne Fork. So. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> well, um, and and we can move on. But what it does is it emphasizes she loves to write about quirky, salt of the earth characters in whatever region she's writing about, and it just it just all it does is just add more humor, but also personality to to these like really you know vivid stories. And I just think it's just another fun element. Uh, it's almost like a game, <laughs> like a drinking game or something. Like you kind of find a funny name and you and you drink or something and you'd be hammered after 100 pages but anyway um what i think just just for the record so people you know we've talked a little bit about the books that she's uh written uh you know her bibliography uh i don't know that we've mentioned every single book nor do i think we have to but i've already made one mistake her by the way her first book that she put out was a the collection of stories called heart songs, heart songs oh, and other stories. Okay. So wrong she, she started with a collection of stories and then her first novel was called postcards. And that was largely set in Vermont. Um, I have not read either of those two books. I'll quickly cover what I have read. And then maybe you could comment on what you've read too. I think a lot of it is in common. Um, I've read two of the three volumes of Wyoming stories. Um, first one is called close range probably the best known of the three. The second one is called Bad Dirt. And uh, I've read her most recent novel, which is a huge doorstop called Barkskins. The Shipping News. And also, as I said, I'm in the middle of her her novel that followed up the Shipping News, which is called Accordion Crimes. Haven't read the third volume of Wyoming short stories. Haven't read Heart Songs or Postcards. And then there's another novel in there um, that was between According Crimes and Barkskins, which is called That Old Ace in the Hole. So that's what I've read. It, you know, what have what have you read uh, from her that may be different from that? And you may be planning to get to this in a minute or something, but I, hopefully it's okay if I mix the order a little bit. So can you also say just briefly, John, like what what started you reading Annie Prue, like, did you? What was the moment where you said, you know, I, I'm going to try this person? Um, yeah, sure. I because it's different for me and you. I'm I'm much later to this party than you are. Uh, essentially, it was, you know, I'd heard of her. I'd certainly heard of the shipping news and had some interest in it. I don't know for whatever for whatever reason it was kind of on the periphery of my mind when it was popular. Didn't see the movie. Um. And I would see her in bookstores and I'd know that she's acclaimed and such, but for some reason I, I never went there. And then uh, it was basically my son's, you know, uh, well, we took a vacation to Wyoming as a family and I got, uh, you, you just fall in love with Wyoming when you go out there, at least certain regions. 
And I was really fascinated and sort of mesmerized by it. And then as it turned out, my son ended up taking a gap year and living in Wyoming for about 10 months. And so because of that, you know, when we were investigating this program, we made several trips out there. So I've been out there about four times. And I, I just, you know, you, I don't, at least the way my, my, my mind works, I don't know how you visit Wyoming, especially if you're an East Coaster like I am for the most part, um, and not, not just be totally mesmerized by the landscape and what it feels like out there. So I, it would, uh, you know, I just got interested in Wyoming as a place, as a landscape and as a state. And so it, 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 somehow it dawned on me or I realized that she had written a number of short stories set in Wyoming. And I thought, because I was newly kind of enamored with Wyoming, I, I thought I need to read one of those. So I just, you know, kind of bought the book Close Range sight unseen. I knew it had, you know, I'd heard of Brokeback Mountain, of course. I knew it had that story in it, but that's really all I knew. And I literally read the first story and was just like, I mean, excuse my French, but I don't know how else to say. I was just like, holy shit. You know, like this is, this is a real writer. Oh my, oh my gosh. I just, I, I was stunned by the first story, um, which uh, I'm trying to remember what it was, called, what, what that's called. Uh, it's the half skin steer. It's the half famous. That's right. The half skin steer. And it just blew my mind. And then the next story was called the mud below. And I'm going to talk more about that a little later, but uh, it just utterly, it got every, every claw on the animal sunk deep into my flesh. And I was just utterly hooked. And that's what did it for me. I mean, how about you? So, yeah, that's a very different way in and it is significant from my way in. So, um, I guess I'll talk first about how I got into Annie Prue and then just cover really quickly what I've read. So for me, it was, you know, it's what it, it's very different, really, which is interesting. It's one thing to like go to a place, you know, and become totally uh, uh, smitten by that place or just like entranced with that place and then find like a real literary representative or a writerly representative and then read, read their work in order to kind of either reinforce or expand upon whatever you had in your mind from what you took in with your senses. Right. Right. Like, like I did that with England and Aikenfield, the book that about the English village that you and I were talking about offline and stuff, you know, and we've both done that with Ireland and that's one, one way to, you know, to get into a writer's work. Uh, but for me, cause I've never been to Wyoming or anywhere in that part of the West at all, as you know. So like, you know, I don't have those connections to the land. I can't connect it with any of my experience at all, you know, but so, but for me it, in the, in the early nineties, you and I were in our twenties, early twenties and we were living separately. And I was starting to uh, become enamored with the sort of the literary scene and the idea of being a writer. I was a long way from writing fiction. That was any good in my opinion still, but uh, it, it was really in my head to kind of like, you know, pay attention. Oh, I'm going to, you know, I feel, I think I'm going to be a writer. So I want to pay attention to what's going on in the writerly world. And it happened to correspond with the publication of the shipping news and the shipping news blew up, you know, it won like the Pulitzer and a couple different major awards. And it was just everywhere. It was all over bookstores. And I remember I read it almost in this like pretentious way. I was like, I'm going to read the big book that's happening mm -hmm. now. And I remember I bought it and I read it and I thought it was really weird. And I, you know, it was, I knew it was good writing, but it was just a little too like, 
you know, perhaps a little too mature for me even, and it was definitely too quirky, you know, and, uh, and that was like around the time it was published, 93 or something like that. So then I kind of moved away from her for quite a while. Um, she, kind of, she kind of resurfaced again with Brokeback Mountain in the early 2000s, you know, because of the film and stuff. But I would say just, just to be frank, I was sort of still a little bit, you know, I was not interested in reading a story about gay cowboys or ranch hands or whatever you wanted to call them. Um, I was just a little bit young and a little bit naive, frankly, and uh, you know, I, I kind of wouldn't go there. It's changed since then, and we'll talk about that story, I'm sure. So I didn't pick her up again all the way up until you had gone to Wyoming and you discovered Close Range, and you were so blown away by Close Range. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you talked about it a lot, and you've talked about it a lot on this podcast. And I was like, you know, by that time, you and I are older, and you're like, you know, of course we've. In the ongoing annals of this long discussion between the two of us, when one of us gets that excited by a book, you got to read it. You know, it's like yeah. the book, Laura, Loris, you, you got to read that book. You know, that's for another time. But like, mm -hmm. um, so essentially that's why, you know, and then you, I had it like, I knew I had to read it, uh, but I hadn't read it yet. I just hadn't gotten around to it or whatever. And then I, I did some more investigating into what she was doing and um the novel Barkskins had come out and i was totally entranced with reading that book and then my daughter happened to buy it for me for my birthday and i think i actually read that before i picked up the stories because you had given me the stories in a three volume package but once i read Barkskins, i was all the way in and i was i was like you know that's when we started talking about doing an episode like this and and really getting into it. and then i read two of the story volumes since then so for, and then lastly uh, so i've read the shipping news and bark skins and the novel side you actually gave me the novel that old ace in the hole but i haven't gotten to it yet and then i read volumes one and three from the wyoming stories one is called close range and three is called fine just the way it is and then recently i reread the shipping news and then there's a one brief nonfiction memoir she wrote came out with about a decade ago called Bird Cloud, which is about the construction of the house she built in Wyoming, where many of those Wyoming stories were written. So, and maybe we'll talk about that later. So that's, that's kind of how I get into her and that's what I've read. Well, that's awesome. And I think that's a good, so we've talked quite a bit about Annie Peru and, and, you know, kind of introductory stuff. And now I think it's time to get into specific books and discuss what we liked about them maybe what we didn't like or whatever, what we'd like to recommend. So I think it's probably a good place to take a break. And then when we come back, like I just said, we'll start, let's start talking about some of the books that we both read and kind of just sharing, you know, our thoughts about those for our listeners. And then if we have time briefly at the end, we can each talk a little bit about uh, at least one book we've read by Prue that the other has not read just to kind of, you know, frankly, <laughs> Um, educate ourselves and uh, then we'll kind of wrap it up so that's the that's the loose plan and if you're okay with that why don't we take a break and we'll be right back okay sounds good Okay, uh, Jude, I assume you can still hear me clearly? Yes, I can. 
All right. So what what we're going to do now is we're going to we're going to dive into some of her work that that we both read. So I thought we would focus on two novels and then some of the Wyoming short stories that we've we've just brought up. Um, we can start with. Uh, well, we should. Why don't we start with her most famous novel to date, which is The Shipping News. And um, just kind of bat that one back and forth, kind of talk about what we liked about it, why we would, why we would recommend it. So, uh, you know, it's a hard, it's kind of hard to summarize, but if you want to take a shot at it, you know, what is it about the shipping news that you feel is memorable? It's, it's interesting about that book that it was such a breakthrough for her, because in some ways, as you, as you alluded to the first time you read it, your, your impression, it's such a quirky book, you know, it's, oh. it's in, the, in kind of an out of, out of the way place that not a lot of people know about. Uh, has very, very quirky characters. The story is pretty oddball because of those characters and because of that out-of-the-way place. And so maybe that accounts for some of its popularity. It's just, you know, kind of foreign and almost alien to most people. You know, that that um, culture and the way of life in Newfoundland, which is where it's largely set. You know, I think I'm tipping my hand a little bit about what makes that book unique, but... Um, I'll put you on. Why would you say the shipping news is is worth picking up and reading? Well, it's interesting, <laughs> John, because um, I, I, you know, so I just reread it, you know, because I thought, you know, I explained why I got into it, and I didn't even really, in a way, I didn't even get into it for the right reasons, you know. It was just the book oh. of the moment, like I was saying, you know, like, yeah, and I yeah. thought, you know. But I was just what I really wasn't ready for that book at the time that I first encountered it. Uh, but rereading it now, I I have to say that it, I like the book a lot, and I would recommend it to people. Um, but I, you know, it's not my favorite work by her, and I think it's just it's 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 very odd. And I, and I have to say I I don't I don't know why it. Um, I was thinking about this, and I just I don't have an answer. I don't know why it latched on even at the time that it did. In the early '90s, it's it's strange. It's got weird characters. It's set in this you know distant kind of place for the most you know Americans, you know. Yeah. Um, and the people have kind of quirky. Have it's like New England, but like so it's like that famous John Gorka line. It's like Ohio, but even more so. You know, yeah, describing yeah. describing New Jersey. <laughs> um, but I never quite, as people who grew up in New Jersey I, and who went to school in Ohio, I never quite understood that line, but okay. No, I, I didn't, I, you know, it's one of those lines you hear and you kind of like say there's something in there, but I'm not sure exactly what it means. But any, yeah. anyway, um, so, you know, but to your question, why would I recommend it? Well, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's very fresh and original, you know, and yeah. it, in spite of the fact that it's just, you know, sort of, dripping with quirk, you know, and kind of oddity. Um, so maybe it's just that it was so like unconventional and so unexpected. Um, it's also written in the very, like I said, from early on, she had the vigorous prose. There's all kinds of like really fascinating descriptions of both the characters. It's one thing she excels at is describing people as well as places, you know, but then yeah. when you learn when you learn more about it, you learn that she, you know, had lived in New England in Newfoundland, sorry, and you know, had spent a lot of time there and sort of had really gotten it invested in like the people and the history and so on and so forth. Although it's not really a historical novel, it's about this 
oddball character named Coyle who has this kind of like doomed marriage and he suffers this tragedy and he's left alone with two little girls and he's in the United States in New England and he happens to hear about a job in Newfoundland and he learns that he has some ancestry up there and, and um, in particular as a result of this tragedy this this old grizzled aunt who lives in Newfoundland comes back to him you know to, to kind of let, uh, deal with matters of you know estate and what have you and then he ends up kind of getting convinced to go to Newfoundland because he's kind of at like sort of loggerheads or at sort of wit's end in his life um, and he's kind of broken emotionally so he goes with her to Newfoundland and starts kind of scratching out a life up there in this old house that belonged to his family you know and that's the yep. the bare the bare bones of the plot um i i mean i would recommend it for the great writing of course and also just kind of the you know it has a lot of the um the the truth telling in it you know there's there's like um sort of tragedy and heartbreak that happens through a lot of the book and it's very sort of uh expressive and uh and and visceral about how these characters kind of navigate through these tragedies and kind of emerge through them and sort of fashion life and so it's just a book with a lot of grittiness but a lot of quirk and oddity about a place that's like not known very well to most people at least in our country i don't know i I don't even know if I made a case for it, but what would you say? And by the way, you know, you're just, you've just read it. We've talked about it off and on for many years, but I, I really didn't get your full assessment. So I, I sort of got the hint that you like that maybe you embrace this particular novel a little more than I did, but why don't you go ahead? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you made a lot of good comments there about it. And I would, I would agree with most of that, but it is interesting that, and this is just sort of a reality you can't get around. You know, you you came at this book when you were about, I don't know, 23, 24. Right. And I'm reading it for the first time when I'm 51, you know. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, water that's flowed under the bridge when you're yeah, 50. Yeah, big difference, I would say. Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference. And so, and, and like, you know, that can't be helped. You come at it as a, as a young person who hasn't, frankly, done a lot of living, relatively speaking. Uh, or at least not adult living, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, and then coming at it at my age. So yeah, you know, I read it for the first time pretty recently, and I was, you know, I was very taken with it. Um, I too would probably say it's not my favorite book by her, but you know, with a writer of this caliber, there's nothing I've read by Annie Prue that I wouldn't recommend pretty highly. Right. And the shipping news is really, you know, in that category for sure. But, you know, I don't want to repeat a lot of the points that you just made, which are all certainly true. I, I will say I do have kind of a, a little bit of a person, a little bit of a personal angle to it as well in, in terms of my interest in it. My wife has a cousin who's a really a dear friend of ours and who uh, is from Canada and lived for years at, and taught and did research, anthropological research in Newfoundland. And uh, so when I first got together with her and for many years when I was when I was with my wife, he was living there. And every once in a while, you know, we didn't see him very often. Every once in a while we would hear from him. And when I did see him, I would ask him, you know, what it's I was just like, wow, every time I saw him, I, he must have gotten bored of 
ask me asking the same question, but I was always like, what's it like to live and work in Newfoundland? I mean, like, in any way. So I learned something, and because he's an anthropologist studying the region and studying the people there, you know, I learned some things about Newfoundland before uh, I ever got to the shipping news. So I already had kind of a, an interest in it, and then we badly wanted to travel there, but our kids were just too young. And it's, it's a place, by the way, that's hard to get to. And that's one of the reasons why Annie Prue left. You know, it's just, uh, you're talking about a place they have to, from, from most points, you have to drive a long way, and then you have to take about an eight-hour ferry trip. I think there are ways to fly into St. John's, um, or is it St. John? I can't remember, but the, the capital city there, there's probably, there must be ways to fly in, but it's not an easy place to get to. So yeah, we were never able, we were never able to pull off a trip up there. But the point is that we we had a connection there, and we could have, and I and we dreamed about it for many years. So I already I came to this book with that angle as well. You know, having learned a little bit about the people there, about you know the economy, about the the fishing culture there, and um, you know some of the struggles that were happening there. I, I had a little bit of a background to that, so that. And that certainly, you know, uh, is all you know, thrown into the mix of this book. Yeah, and, so, and just, John, to, to interrupt you for just one second, I'm sorry, because I know that's frustrating, but it's just really no, interesting okay. to me how I'm sort of realizing that you had some connections to some of the places that are vital with Annie Proulx's fiction, if you consider your son in Wyoming and your trips to Wyoming, plus this connection that I knew you had at least to somebody who was there and wanting to go there, whereas I had no connection and still have no connection to any of those places. So that's just kind of interesting. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought about that. By the way, you just said cruel, so we're we're going to we're going to keep each other accountable here. <laughs> it's it's a lost cause. Yeah, it's really hard. I, I don't know what it is, but um I, I I'm going to quickly jump to, you know, you've mentioned a lot about the book that is interesting, but I'm going to throw in a few other things that you didn't say by way of recommendation. Um Number one, she just there's such a, a, a broad cast of characters here, and uh, there's such to me it was such an interesting cast of characters. And again, it kind of came with her trademark sort of humor, and a lot of her humor I realize comes from people who are dealing with who are struggling, you know. And she sees sort of the humorous side of that, and that certainly would apply to the people in Newfoundland that she describes here. They may be struggling economically. They, they you know, in, in this book in particular, just about everybody who lives there has lost at least one relative to the sea. So, you know, it's almost people just kind of take it as a given that you're going to lose some of your people to the water. And there's uh, there are certainly descriptions of that, you know, happening in the book. But it's kind of interesting just psychologically, you know, to read about people who are just they, they're expecting some kind of personal tragedy you know, to happen at some point in their lives and they just kind of live with that, you know, and um, not to spoil too much of the book, but, you know, this, uh, you know, there's a, a specific place where a lot of the action takes place and that, that whole place ends up being lost, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, these are people who deal with, you know, great losses and they just kind of roll with it. You know, they don't, they don't really have a choice. And that adds kind of a dimension to their character that I think is, is really interesting and, you know, relatable because we've all, most people have had to deal with loss in one way or another. So that was another aspect of the book that I found interesting. It's also, you know, we haven't mentioned the title, but what, what he goes up there 
I'll, I'll run this by you. You might find this interesting. You know, I think it's it's a it's an interesting book that looks at sort of the the emergence of a vocation or a talent or a calling in somebody's life because he goes up there and he has he has no background whatsoever in working in writing or working for a newspaper, but he's looking for, but he's looking for a job and he ends up being put on. You know, he ends up getting a job at the local newspaper, which in itself is really kind of quirky and funny and, you know, as you might imagine. But he gets put on the the shipping news, which is just to report on, you know, boats that come into the harbor, you know, what what they what they may be carrying, you know, uh, what their condition is, you know, and that sort of thing. And he has absolutely no background in it at all. But throughout the well, book, uh, John, John, that's not technically true, just to correct you a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm sorry again, but so when he's in New England, he's working for a newspaper, but he does, but he does, he has no connection to any writing. He, he works in like the printing. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Press. And that's how, yeah. you know, somebody suggests that he looks into the shipping news, but he's just, he has no writing experience. He's not a reporter. Yeah, yeah. I forgot. That's, that's a good correction, but that's throughout the book. What emerges is that he does have a talent for writing, and you get little pieces of his writing. And he, I, I thought that was an interesting aspect of the book because, you know, it, it, it's like in a way it's about somebody finding a voice, you know, for themselves or finding sort of like a hidden talent that they didn't know was there. Yeah, you know, point. Yep. And I thought that was an interesting aspect of it as well. And then you know, there's also the, the book is. She said this is as close as you know I come to having a quote unquote happy ending. And the book is a little bit. It's kind of a weird love story too, in a way that's not in any way sappy or sentimental. But it's no. also an look at two people who have dealt with a lot of sorrow and tragedies in their lives and how they find solace in one another. I guess I'd put it that way. Yeah. So, there's a lot going on in this book, but and it's a it's an odd brew. But I think, um, you know, that in itself is what makes it interesting. And as you said at the outset, it's it's highly original, and it also describes a place that that you know feels like it's almost something out of a dream, but is a very real place that most people have no knowledge of or experience with whatsoever. So if that's yeah. appealing. You know, that would be another reason to pick up the shipping news. Yeah, and I, I, there's two other things I wanted to say about the shipping news, John. I'm, I, I'm sure you wanted to move on, but um, just I'll try to cover them really quickly. Um, I, you know, I've thought about this. I, I don't, I don't see how this would account for the book being really <laughs> popular. Um, but one thing that does set it out, set it apart, though, is, and you and I talked about it. She explains the introduction. She found this kind of interesting device to help her frame the chapters of the novel. So she explains that she was at this like, and this is this is Taylor Ray for you and me, you know. She was at this uh, like used book sale somewhere in New England or Newfoundland or somewhere, and she found for a quarter this really old book that was specifically about knots with a K, like you know ship knots used in like fishing and stuff. Like yeah. some kind of guide to making knots. And she quite brilliantly uh, sort of used that as kind of a, it sounded to me like it was almost an impetus or like this real inspiration or thing that made her mind really start to explode with this material. And she used the knots, like a, a picture of a knot and a description of the knot 
as as a entranceway or introduction to each of the chapters in the shipping news, which I think is really, again, it's a mark of really fresh originality and also kind of smart and interesting. So that yeah. could have appeal to some people. And the other thing I wanted to say is, and I have to say this, it's a little bit of a plot spoiler, but I'm not going to give you the, the full plot spoiler, but the second time reading it, it was interesting. The most striking thing in the book for me by far was, and this is just a quintessential Annie Prue moment, um, is there's, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm forgetting a key detail, but the, the elderly aunt from Newfoundland had this tragedy and they're wrapping up matters of estate. And I can't remember, maybe you can help me, John. It's, um, uh, there's somebody who died and, I, and it's either her much older brother or it's her father, the, el the elderly aunt. Um, I just mm -hmm. can't remember. I can't remember which one of those it is. Can you? Was it her brother or her father? Uh, not off the top of my head. Uh, it might be her father, but uh, maybe as you go on, I'll remember. Okay. So they're wrapping up affairs of state. She secures her father. Let's just say it's her father for the sake of argument. I wish I could remember. I'm sorry if I have it wrong. But she get, secures his ashes, and she's going to convey. She sort of doesn't talk about it much, but she's going to convey his ashes back to Newfoundland. So Coyle is dealing with his own heartbreak and he's kind of not, you know, he's totally flailing around in life in general. So it just kind of doesn't truck in all that. And then when they Newfoundland sort of fairly early on in the novel, the aunt, the elderly aunt takes the ashes um, and they're, they're going to this old house that figures into the story. And there's like the house is so old, there's like an outhouse in the back. And she does this with like out of, you know, you're seeing it as the reader, but it's totally out of eyesight of, eyes, you know, shot of anyone else. You know, it's like something solitary that she does. And mm -hmm. we follow her back to the outhouse and she brings the ashes with her and she dumps all the ashes into the hole in the outhouse. And then she sits down and she urinates on the ashes. <laughs> and she says, and she says, and it's her like father's asses or her older brother's asses. And then she says, welcome home, buddy. And you don't, you're not told until much later in the book why she, something like that. But it's such a striking moment. Like you think about she, she very deliberately and without fanfare, didn't talk to anybody about it. You're seeing her as just the reader. She just brought. She made sure, damn sure, she brought those ashes back to the homestead so she could dump them in the latrine and piss on them, you know, which, yeah. if you think about it, of course, is probably one of the, you know, the, uh, the, the most profound statements of uh, anger or, you know, hate that you could possibly make as a human being, you know, um, even though nobody can see you doing it, you know, so something she's doing for herself. And that, to me, is the kind of moment that is in Annie Bruce, Annie Prue's fiction, you know, like, uh, you know, you don't know why she's doing it, but damn, it's a, it's a statement, you know, and that's the right. kind of thing she has in her, in her works of fiction, you know, you're right. Although you find out later why she does that. And you do. Yeah. You could, you could argue there's a very good reason why she does that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a dark moment. But it's like you were saying before, it's it, she's certainly there's a perfect she's not shying away from something. There is a very dark undercurrent that runs through this book and she doesn't shy away from it. And in fact, you know, it did it did make people in real life in Newfoundland upset. Uh, but she she went there anyway because she felt like she needed to. 
So there is a word that we haven't used yet in this podcast, but that describes her writing very much, and that's integrity. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot about the shipping news. I think we'll take a few minutes to talk about Barkskins. I know Barkskins is a huge book, so and you know it may seem like we're giving it short shrift, and I know it's a particular you know favorite of yours, but I, it has been discussed on the podcast a few times. So, yeah. but I, didn't, I don't want to skip it, but I don't think we should spend a ton of time on it. But um, do you want to describe Barkskins for, for our readers real quick one more time? Yeah, I'll try. I, 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 you know, read Barkskins, I guess now about a year and a half. And you're right. We talked about it. I've mentioned it a few times. We don't have to beat it to death. Um, to me, it's just a magnificent book. It's still probably my um but it's like a it's a uh, a, a historical chronicle of like uh, the, uh, French Canada, like you know, sort of like the areas I think to the north of like Ontario and uh, maybe Montreal, like you know. Um, and it, I, m- some of my details of it are going to be sketchy, John. But I somewhere around like the fifteen or sixteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds possibly with the indigenous 16. peoples. Yeah, with the indigenous peoples and kind of people from Europe coming into the area. And it basically sort of tracks the history of that region through a gigantic uh, cast of characters that trace down generationally through several centuries, you know, three or four centuries, you know, and it it, um, takes like a couple of different families in their lineage and explores their um, making their making lives for themselves in that region. Um, also including the indigenous peoples and people who come from uh, in, in from other countries. And it takes some detours because of the lumber industry and some of the industries that the people get involved in to other countries. Like it goes to New Zealand for a while and it follows these characters as they go to different parts of the world also. But it's just this large historical sweeping saga about this one particular region of North America. Yeah, and also about very much about you know deforestation and yes. the lumber the lumber industry, and she right. takes that area of the world as the kind of locus or, or or focus for that. But that you know she explores how that industry develops, and that takes her to everywhere from like you said from China to New Zealand to the West Coast, you know Washington State. And uh, you know, out west in the United States and other 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 points, you know, to try to find unique and you know durable and high quality wood. Um, and uh, this is, you know, this is one of these. Can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. Huge sprawling uh, historical novels that some people love and some people, frankly, just don't have the patience or time for. It. So, you know. Like a book like there was a guy named Edward Rutherford, I think, who used to write these huge, sprawling historical novels like um, Sarum that was about England, English history. And I think the one was called Ruska or something about Russian history. You know, and these are massive books. I know you read a few of those, um, you know, James Mishner type books where you have this gigantic book about the Chesapeake region where I live or it might be Alaska or, or what have you. This is... This is one of those books. So, you know, and, and anybody who has a thing for, you know, sprawling historical fiction that covers, 
you know, hundreds of years, this would be a book I would say you can't miss, uh, especially because of the quality of the writing. But if you don't have any interest in that kind of historical fiction or, you know, deforestation or the, the effects of, you know, lumber, uh, you know, going after lumber and how it affected the environment, it may not be for you. I do want to point out something I mentioned earlier, you know, one again, that I would say is a real hallmark and um, uh, advantage of reading Annie Pruis. She, she does take, like you mentioned, she does take quite a bit of time to and pays attention to the indigenous peoples. I find that particularly interesting. You know, it starts in French Canada, but when the, that section you, you mentioned where it goes to New Zealand, she spends a lot of time on the indigenous people there and the way that they see the trees in that region, the way their relationship with the environment. This is a through line through that book in particular that I found really interesting. So you're not just getting, it's about, you know, really the book is about, and she has said this is about kind of the Western mindset informed by Christianity that says, you know, we are supposed to, you know, take and use nature as our own. And we are the stewards of that nature. We can use it as we want to. And sort of contrasting that with other ways, other traditions, other spiritual traditions, other cultures, and how they see the world and the natural world and the environment. And I think Annie, Annie Prue is really looking hard at that and not just looking at the effects of one particular industry, but looking at the effects of a whole culture and mindset and worldview and how that impacts the environment, how it impacts the planet we live on and, and the quality of our lives. So there's, what I'm saying is there's a, there's a, there are themes that kind of arch over the history, arch over the particulars of, of the lumber business that have to do with our relationship to the natural world. And I think she explores that very interestingly in the book Bark Skins. So that's, that's what I would say is, really of note from from the experience of reading that book. And there's a whole lot of other aspects to it too. And as I said, many, many characters and men and women of all kinds of races and creeds and cultures. So it's a real, you know, booyah base of a book. But if you have the patience to get through it, it's a very rich one. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say before we move on, first of all, I think you did a really good job of and and I've said this before. Sometimes I think you're a little a little bit more adept than I am at sort of latching on to the the broader implications of some of these books. Um, and I just say that matter of factly because um, you did a really good job summarizing the themes, especially deforestation, but also you know man's relationship to the land. I would say in a broad way. But just for so yeah, it's a it, you know just to, by way of conclusion, it's a. It's a really long, sprawling book. Some people just don't want to spend that much time anywhere, you know. But it's it's yeah. also it's got again it's Annie Proust, so it's going to have. I mean, and because it's set in such a brutal landscape, it has a lot of that brutality. I mean, it's like people freeze to death. There's some harrowing deaths. Babies die. Elderly people die. You know, you get you're just going to get all these things in it. But right. I, I just have to say, and I've said this before, but I can say it very quickly is. I'm just amazed for me, like I've read a lot of big books and I, I love James Michener. I think he's been like kind of aligned by a lot of people, but I like that kind of stuff, you know, and I'm always amazed by the industry of the writer and, and just pulling something like that off. 
But bark skins in particular for me, I I kind of I, I know this sounds ridiculous, but to me it's practic it's almost like a literary kind of miracle <laughs> in a way. And I, I and I, what I mean by that is it's not a miracle, but like a, you know it's an amazing book. But I when I I was saying I've said to you before when I that book takes a long time to read. And even compared to other long sprawling historical books, that book, when I went back to it, I was excited to read it every time. It just, every time I read it, I just kind of blew through sections of it without caring how long it was taking. And it was mm -hmm. just, uh, and I attribute that to just her writing and how immersive and vital it was. Like it, it just was really, for those who have the patience, it just pulled me completely out of my world and set me completely in another, granted, much harsher world. But I yeah. just, I'm so impressed by that. That's why it remains my favorite book. I just blew through that book. I didn't care how big it was. I just wanted to keep reading it. So, but that, you know, won't necessarily be everybody's experience. Yeah, I mean, some of that does, you know, uh, does get chalked up to the kind of reader that you are in particular. I mean, we're talking about someone, we just joked about this a couple episodes back. We're talking about someone who's read, you know, Dickens's Bleak House multiple times. You know, <laughs> yeah. if you can do that, you've got a hell of a lot of patience as a reader. That's number one. Um, yeah, so, not, you know, you, you're that kind of reader, you know, a very industrious reader. By the way, um, you know, thanks for your comments before. But the other thing I should point out is that, you know, I read Barkskins a lot more recently than you did. So it's a little fresher in my memory, maybe, than it is. Yeah. Yeah. Years. But um, as we always say, you know, we kind of. We're, we're sort of interested in different aspects as we read as readers, you know, so maybe different, different stuff rises to the top for both of us. But, True. um, so you said, you said a couple of times, this is probably your favorite novel of Prue's or work of Prue's. We're going to get into now what is definitely my favorite uh, part of her work so far, which is, and I've loved just about everything I've read by her. But the three volumes of Wyoming Stories, now, granted, I've only read two, but I love them both. And her first, if I had to name a favorite single book, her, her book Close Range, which is the first volume of, of Wyoming Stories, would be it, hands down. Um, it, it's the one I described before that blew me away. Um, but I'd like to talk a bit about the Wyoming Stories, because as we mentioned before, between the two of us, we've actually read all three volumes. Um, I have not read the third one, and you have not read the second one, so... We can sort of cover the whole trilogy between the two of us. Um, I've already described a little bit, you know, the, my, my kind of personal connection a little bit to the state of Wyoming, um, why, you know, I developed a fascination for it. And the why, but more than anything else, I would say, you know, I, I it, it took the first two stories in the, in the first volume of Wyoming stories, which is called again, close range. We've mentioned them already. One is called the the, the half skin steer, I think you, you said. Yes. Um, and the second one is called the mud below. They were so immersive into not just that physical landscape, but the people who live there and and the kind of the various ways of life there. You know, whether that be rodeo culture, whether it be you know running a ranch, operating a ranch, or herding cattle, or dealing with sheep or um, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, uh, these stories were so visceral and came and just brought that whole culture alive to me in a way 
that I've rarely experienced, you know, from any writer. I mean, I, I just felt totally immersed in that, in the way it is in the state of Wyoming. And Wyoming, as, as many people know, but some people don't, you know, is the most wide open state in terms of, you know, the relationship of land to population. It's the least dense state in the United States. You know, there's like one person for every like three and a half miles or something like that in Wyoming. It's just a wide open, at times very desolate, very rugged kind of, not wasteland, but just landscape of a place. And I think, you know, Annie Prue in her stories really kind of brings that aspect out of it, that it's, it's just not an easy place to live, both economically and kind of physically. And that cup comes up again and again and again in her stories but is mixed with her trademark kind of quirk and humor uh, in a way that I found just incredibly fascinating and refreshing. Um, and so that was my experience reading the first book, Close Range. And then the second book, which is called Bad Dirt. The first book, you know, focuses a lot on the people who live and work on the landscape. And it goes back into history for a few of the stories as well. It kind of describes you know, how people came to that land, how they settled on the land, some of the hardships, what they had to face in trying to eke out a living there. The second book is has a little bit of a different feel. It's almost more, it feels, I've said this before, but it feels more like, almost like tall tales in a way or stories that are being told around the campfire. At least some of them do. You know, you have a story that is a dialogue between three badgers. One of the stories Another story in the second volume, Bad Dirt, um, describes a beard growing contest in this in this fictional town called Elk's Tooth, Wyoming. And it involves characters who kind of pop up here and there in many of the stories. But that's the gist of the stories. They're, you know, everybody's trying to grow the longest beard. And they all convene at this, you know, saloon and compare, <laughs> you know, it's just really funny and odd and weird. And, you know, the women kind of look on like, I don't know what the hell these guys are doing. So that's that's one of the stories. And then there's a third story, which I've mentioned to you before, but I think you'll find this interesting. I felt like there's a story called Florida Rental, which is the last story in the second volume, Bad Dirt. And it feels to me like it could have come from the pen of T.C. Boyle, dude, which you might find interesting. You know, I don't know. It'd be interesting to compare the short stories of those two writers. I don't know how much common ground there would be, but this particular story, let's just say it involves transplanting a certain animal species that belongs in a very different landscape and putting it into Wyoming and then seeing what happens. Mm. <laughs> that, that is a very T.C. Boyle kind of thing to do, you know? Yes, definitely. Yeah. You know, there's some interesting, you know, similarities between the two and the ways that they come back to dealing with the environment and, you know, uh, both kind of right with the wry sense of humor. But that's maybe for another discussion. Yeah, true. But, but Florida Rental is a story I'll never forget because it just it just presents a situation that you could that you could never imagine and then just kind of lets it unfold. And it doesn't particularly end well. And, um, you know, but it's it's fascinating. So. Those are just a couple impressions of the first two books, but I, I you know, just from reading the first two volumes, I, I, I could not possibly recommend these stories any higher. And we could also, if you wanted to, we could talk a little bit about the fam most famous story from any of these volumes, which is Brokeback Mountain, 
and kind of mm-hmm. because people are aware of that story, they know that, you know, essentially what it's about. But we could talk about how it maybe struck us, but um, those are some thoughts about the first two volumes. I thought maybe you could comment on the Wyoming stories and maybe talk a little bit about the third volume, which is called Fine Just the Way It Is. Yeah, right. Um, so I, I thought you did a really nice job sort of talking about her stories in general. And I would just suggest that, you know, anybody who heard us talking about bark skins and can't may have some interest in Annie, in Annie Prue, but can't tolerate a book that long or sprawling or um, ambitious. Uh, you get in a weird way, some of the same elements from those first two stories, at least in close range in a much, much smaller space, you know, like, um, and I, I realize they're not really about the same landscape or anything like that, but you get some of the same qualities and like the incredible writing and sort of the, 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 the natural beauty and power of, of the place and all that kind of stuff. So if you can't, and I would just say in general, close range, I mean, I've only read two of the volumes just like you, as you explained, but, I mean, it seems to me that Close Range is probably the kind of crown jewel from that trilogy. And I would say, I would have to say, I'm with you about Close Range. It's probably one of the best short story collections I've ever read. Um, Soup to Nuts from cover to cover. And, you know, and I, yeah, I do want to talk a little bit about Brokeback Mountain, uh, so maybe I can in a minute, but which is also in Close Range. But I had a, you know, I had, you sort of wetted my whistle quite a bit before I approached close range, but nothing can really, in a way, prepare you for how incredibly written and uh, how powerful her stories are. You mm-hmm. know, they're very powerful in one way or another, almost every one. There's there are very few misfires. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I really, I really loved and admired the first two stories, the same ones you talked about. Um, one or two other ones in that book and then broke back mountain for sure was a very noteworthy and powerful story. And then as far as the third volume goes, which is called find the way it is. I mean, it's a little bit shorter and perhaps a little bit slighter in a way than um, close range, but we'll talk about range. It did show it, there was a broader range of styles in the third. And I would almost describe it as kind of, it sounds like so, a little bit of both from the first two in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, it did have one or two historical stories. The first story in the book, um, I've got it here with me. I, I mix up the titles. It's called Family Man, which is kind of a classic Prue story that gets a little bit into the history of one particular man. And it's a very powerful, very dark, but very powerful. Um, uh, the last two stories in the final volume, one's called The Testimony of the Donkey. And the last one, as you know, very memorably titled Tits Up in a Ditch. Yeah. You know, those are actually two very tough and harsh stories that really hit you emotionally. Um, both very memorable as well, but they're they're not easy. Those stories are not easy. And um, but also just noteworthy that I've sort of alluded to in in Find Just the Way It Is. First of all, I think it's interesting that that phrase find just the way it is finds its way into three of the stories, at least that was my count, in totally different contexts. But they're mm-hmm. all like different characters in Wyoming who are basically saying like the old way is is the way it should be. And, you know, this is fine the way it is. 
but it comes up in three different contexts, which is kind of amusing and interesting. But the the, the third volume yeah, does a little this. bit. Sorry, it's a little bit like what like the common phrase is used now: "If it ain't broken, don't fix it." Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just like it's in that spirit. Um, yeah. But I, I do have to mention really quick, and and maybe I'll um, get to read a snippet or two later on from these but there are two stories in the final volume that really surprised me they were utterly hilarious and they were they featured the same characters and one of them was that character Dwayne Fork that I mentioned because the stories are both set in hell and they're and that the protagonist is the devil and they're hilarious um <laughs> skewerings of almost everything and then but you think well how is this related to Wyoming stories in both stories she found that a way they're not really about the West, but she found a way to work in the West in these really funny satirical stories. And Dwayne Fork is like the devil's like assistant, like basically a executive admin kind of running around <laughs> follow, following after the devil. And the devil is like going around and saying, you know, we ought to do this. We ought to take this down, Dwayne Fork, you know, and stuff like that. And the, the stories are t utterly hilarious. The first one is called I've Always Loved This Place. And the second one with the same characters is called Swamp Mischief, you know, and those were really surprising and they're very, very worth reading. Uh, there was a little tiny line from sort of both that I wanted to read. I, I don't know if I'm going to do that right away, but maybe we'll get a chance at the end. I don't know if we share little snippets of Annie Prue's work, but, um, but yeah, John, I, uh, unless you want to do something else, like, do you want to talk about Brokeback Mountain for a few minutes? Yeah, we can. I, I forgot to, I want to quickly highlight a, a story. I've mentioned it already called The Mud Below, which is from the first the first uh, volume, Close Range. And it'll segue us into Brokeback Mountain because I didn't realize this until I did a little reading. Well, she won back-to-back O'Henry Awards. The O'Henry Award is awarded for a particular short story of that's deemed uh, noteworthy. And in right. 1998 and 1999, she won it twice in a row, which is, you know, rare. And the two stories that won this award were The Mud Below and Brokeback Mountain. Oh, wow. Uh, the Mud Below, I won't go too far into it, but it is in about, you mentioned the economy of these stories. If, if someone's not interested in reading an 800-page book from Prue, well, this, this story is about 25 pages and it completely immersed, immersed me and immerses the reader into a, a subculture I knew nothing about that I just found utterly fascinating. And that is the rodeo circuit out west, but not the like A-level rodeo circuit. This is more like B-level. And it involves a young guy who just gets just on a whim. He's with a friend of his and, he's, and they're working on the, and on the friend's ranch and, you know, for the friend's father. And he says, when they're done at, in the evening, as the sun's going down, he says, you want to have some fun? And so he puts him, he said, let's, let's ride a bull. And so this young guy gets onto a bull. And then when he gets onto the bull, he experiences an elation and an, an adrenaline rush. That's unlike anything he's ever experienced before. It's essentially a spiritual experience in a way. And, Prue describes it very beautifully and he basically becomes addicted. He's like, I, I, this is what I need to do. And his mother who's raising him as a single mother is vehemently against it. And he's like, you, mom, you can't stop it. I'm doing this. 
And it follows his experience kind of traveling all over the West, trying to become a bull rider. But it is so visceral about the beating these guys take. And, you know, this is a real circuit. You know, this is, I remember when we were out in Wyoming, you know, there was a lot of uh, advertising for, you know, and this is in uh, Jackson Hole, but there's a, a big kind of rodeo outside of the main city there or town that, you know, people go to all the time and you can go and watch the rodeo, you know, with the bull riding and calf roping and all of it. But this, this, this story is just gets into, you know, just so like viscerally about like, like, you know, the physical toll of being on the circuit, not just from being on the road and driving, you know, all through the night to get to the next rodeo in some podunk town, but you know, the injuries, uh, there's some just grueling and gruesome descriptions of some of the injuries that these guys bear. And in fact, this story ends with the main character getting hurt very badly and just basically saying, you know, sew me up, Doc, because I can't stop. I got to keep going. But he can barely use one of his arms. And it's just, it's just one, of, I would put this up. If you ask me some, one of the most vivid stories I've ever read about anything, this would be one of them. The Mud Below. It's, it's just an astonishing story. And there's a lot of heartbreak in it, too. This kid's kind of running away from aspects of his life that he doesn't know how to handle. And it's so it just it hits you in the heart and the gut. It's just an astonishing story. So I just had to mention that. But yeah, yeah, it's one of the absolute standouts of this collection. And, and another one would certainly be Brokeback Mountain. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I think most people have an idea of what it's about, but we'll, we'll just say it's about uh, two people, two two young men who are from very different parts of the state of Wyoming, by the way. One is from one side, one's from literally the other side. They're hundreds of miles apart. Somehow they end up meet, and they both kind of grow up and get married, and, but they end up meeting. They, they're looking for work because an undercurrent of this story is how hard it is to work and get by in Wyoming. So these two young men are just looking for anything to, to kind of support their young families. And they end up working on the same sheep ranch, which is again, like I said before, you know, cowboys work with horses, according to Annie Prue, and, and you know, they don't work with sheep. And yeah. these guys end up as basically tending sheep out, out on the mountains. And so they spend these long, long hours together. And for some reason, one of the great, one of the great virtues of this story is it doesn't try to explain why this happens. There's just an undeniable and un, inarguable and unresistible sort of attraction to each other that neither one of them understand or can explain, but they both immediately find out that they can, they can hardly live without it. And that's the story. And it's kind of how it, how it explores. It doesn't explain why this happened, it, it just, it's like you were saying before about her realistic outlook. She's not going to explain why it happened, but it happened. And now they've got to deal with it. And that's essentially what the story is about. It is one of the things that made me and foolishly made me kind of resist the story is because I thought it was essentially a gay romance. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is not a romance in any way. I mean, it is in some ways, maybe if you want to stretch that definition, it's not romantic at all. It's just, it, it's almost scientific saying this happened between these two men. They had no idea how to explain it, nor how to live with it, but it happened. 
and it's still happening. And what are we going to do about it? And that's, there's something just incredibly admirable and interesting about the way this story explores that difficult reality. You know, that's how I would set it up. That's really, there's a lot that kind of blew me away about that story, but that's, that's at the heart of it. What would you say? I would just say that, you know, like to me, and you could debate this. One of the things, one of the things that's so interesting about this story is you could debate a lot of it. You know, like I said, in an earlier point in my life, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near it um, just because it had to do with, you know, sexual relations between two men, frankly. But yeah. it's just not, re- it's just not really, that's not what it, it's all about. It's about, but I would, I'd be interested to see how it's not a romance romance at all. But I would call it a love story. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the, they essentially fall in love with each other, although it is so visceral that it's like almost, you know. Uh, Chemical. Or- yeah, and they're just so ill-prepared as the nature of their lives and their and the time they live in whatever to, to really get to. And because they're men and all this, to get too much into like their feelings. But the most mm-hmm. powerful parts of the story to me are when they try to go near what they're feeling, you know, because they, mm-hmm. they don't have they don't really have language for it. But what you come away with is how much pain it's causing them, you know. Yeah. And and the people they're surrounded by. And like if you had like, you know, much worse story, a much worse title for this story would be Love Hurts, you know, which is a lot of um, comes up again and again. And Annie Proulx's work. But this is what I mean about her not shying away from the realities of life. And this story just magnificently explores these things, like how much, you know, it's, it's very hard to read. It's very hard to get through the conclusion. Um, and, but it's just absolutely magnificently executed. And you come, you cannot come out of this story, no matter where you stand, if you give it an honest chance and not be kind of moved by it, these two guys like fell in love with each other and had this whole reaction physical reaction to one another and like you said they got to deal with it and that's the whole story and it just both of them you know and you know in a way in a very dark way it's one of the most powerful stories about love that I have ever read you know fortunately it's like very tragic and difficult you know so I mean that's really what I wanted to say about it, but it's just it's just it's such an amazing story that it it's really worth people's time if they if they can stand it, you know. And I think we both sort of testify to how powerful it is because we both sort of resisted it for whatever foolish reasons, or maybe we're not open minded enough, or maybe just not interested in that kind of story. Could and maybe frankly, you know, we we have a worldview that uh, we know might be challenged by it a little bit. So there might even have been like afraid to kind of go there, but whatever it is, when you do go there and you, it, it, it just, it hits you in the heart and soul and uh, on a level that you just can't deny. And um, yeah. there, there's great, great skill and power in that. And uh, yeah, I was very moved by the story. You cannot not be moved. You can't be a human being who cares about other human beings. And not be moved. That's right. You'd literally have to have this heart. And, you know, I would have to say, John, that like, you know, if anyone has any interest in Annie Prue's work, like this is an essential story to read. You know, it is. And and it's you mentioned it's very challenging. It's not easy. It's certainly not 
going to leave you with warm, happy feelings. But it's so admirable the way, and of course, part of it is that she's exploring this in this setting of the state of Wyoming. And, you know, there's a whole subtext of, you know, kind of the masculine culture of, you know, working on a ranch and even though they're not cowboys, being a cowboy and working on the land and all that. And, you know, this kind of thing just doesn't happen. But of course it does happen. And that's part of what she's explaining, you know, and, and exploring. It's just, yeah, it's just an immensely powerful story, you know, uh, and it just shows like, you're right. It's kind of like a real showpiece for the power of her writing, both on a physical and an emotional. So, yeah, it's interesting you know, that, I heard in one interview, and we can move on, she said, basically said, you know, I kind of wish I never wrote that story, you know, um, because of the way, I think she was like, you know, we said, we implied that she's kind of cantankerous, and she admits in her nonfiction that she's kind of a bossy, opinionated person, and I think that people just took the film, and she didn't knock the film, but took it as this basically cow, gay cowboy romance, and she commented it is almost kind of an albatross for her that people just you know continue either want to say something about that story or want to misinterpret it and she's she was like i wish i never wrote that but like you know uh, but but you know i don't think she had a choice in the way that fiction writers you know operate yeah and i i heard her say something about that as well and she and the other part of that is she she, she feels very firmly that it belongs in the in the cycle of stories that is the book Close Range, which are about different lives and different aspects of people's lives, you know, in the state of Wyoming. And so it's like, it's a part of that cycle. It, it fits in with that set of stories and it really has become its own thing outside of that. Whereas she sees it very much as a part of this, you know, kind of unified body of work, but anyway. It certainly left its mark on the culture. We're kind of, you know, of course we're running long. Uh, I did want to at least talk about to each other about the books that we've read that the other didn't. We were going to get into maybe some moments that stuck out to us from her writing, but I think we've hit some of those and I, you know, I'm going to trim that out. (laughs) You know, maybe that's a bonus feature or something, but uh, let's at least try to quickly talk about so you read, well, I'll let you set it up. You read one of one of her nonfiction books that I haven't, and that's called Bird Cloud. Let's at least tell our listeners a little bit about that book, and then I'll talk just a little bit about Accordion Crimes, another one of her novels that I'm really enjoying. Okay, yeah, and I'm, I'm down with, uh, with all that you just said as far as rounding out the episode. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have to spend a ton of time. So Bird Cloud is an interesting book. It wasn't my favorite. Of, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a fiction guy. Everybody who listens to this knows that. But I was interested in the book, and it's um, a fairly short memoir, 200 and something pages. And like I said before, it's a memoir of her. It's odd. It's a memoir of building a house, basically. Um, and, it, and it goes in very painstakingly, very painstaking detail. Uh, because it was ob- it turns out to have been a very painstaking process of her not only building a house in Wyoming, but s- sort of looking and finding the land to do it and then attempting to buy land in Wyoming and all the agencies from the government and, you know, different 
factions on the ground that you have to de deal with even even to buy the land and then all of the details about the land itself especially the things you don't realize are part and parcel with living on the land when you buy it in one season and you don't have experience with it in another season mm. and uh, so like you know just to put things in a time like you know so the uh, close range that volume of stories came out in the i think it's the early 2000s um if i'm not mistaken or it might have been 99 or 2000 something like that and then yeah, she late, late 90s yeah okay so she didn't the land according to bird cloud that she built a house on until 2003 and then it goes over the next several years and the house didn't even get built until something like 2007 or eight. There were so many challenges to building the house that are all talked about in the book. And then she lived there for a certain period of time and then now she doesn't live there anymore. And um, so you have to have some tolerance for her talking at length about the different choices especially once they start building the house that had to be made around all the features she wanted and, you know, um, how difficult it was to find the materials and some of her personal taste for the materials she wanted to use and where the windows should be and what they should, you know, how, how the house is constructed with relation to the winds and all this. So it's a lot of those details at the same time. She does a lot of like writing about her, active outdoor life so she walks around and does a lot of cross-country skiing as the house is getting built and she's living there part of the year even before it was constructed so she does a lot of writing about the birds and the eagles and the landscape and all that kind of thing and and then but i would say like you know and she does some writing about what about the writing she was doing at the time from time to time but not a lot of that which would have been probably a little more interesting for me because I, you know, I like how hearing about how different books were written. There's a little bit about her own personal family history and her background in the beginning of the book. But what stands out the most for me, though, from Bird Cloud, and she's very open about it, is how, uh, frankly, how much of it didn't work out relative to what she thought she was going to be making or what she thought she wanted from living in the area. And the book basically concludes with her saying, you know, I, it, it was never what I wanted it to be. And uh, she, you can see her sort of going through this process, which I think she has done for much of her life, of realizing that there is no idea for somebody like her, you know, and her there, there's no cure for some of the restlessness. And frankly, the, you know, um, cant cantankerousness or irritation she has over certain things, whether it's being near people or having her time put upon or having attain this or that. And so the what's interesting about the book is that it's kind of comes over as like this big grand, almost a failure, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. and it sounds like such a magnificent place and such a magnificent house, but at the end of it, she's still not satisfied, you know, and she's very open about that. And so it's just interesting. It's not your typical book about a house or a, there's not, I don't know how many books there are about building a house, but she weaves a lot of different elements into it and it has uh, really good writing. But I, I would say that it had lots of lulls in it for me because I just don't care about what concrete you put down and, you know, 
what you use for siding, etc. You know. Yeah. So it's an interesting book, and it gave me some insights into what makes her tick. You know, but it wouldn't be for everyone. Mm-hmm. Hey, I I can think of another book written about building a house, and it would be, make a nice pairing with this book actually. And that that comes from Tracy Kidder, who we mentioned in our in uh, recently. Um, trying to remember which episode, but uh, who is his well best known book is called The Soul of a New Machine. Oh about yeah, about the construction of an early personal computer. Well. You may be surprised to learn, or maybe not, that I I have on my shelf a book called House that he wrote, which is about, you know, building kind of a dream house. I think on like Long Island or something, or somewhere in New England. But uh, that's another book about the building of a house kind of from the ground up, which might be interesting to read if you're you're into that kind of thing. Um, Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, what else was I going to say real quick? Uh, you mentioned one of the interesting things you mentioned. Again, because I've been to Wyoming a few times, I might find aspects of it maybe a little bit more interesting than you did. And one is you said, you know, there's the reality of, you know, just because you know how to live in Wyoming in June does does not mean you know how to live in Wyoming in December. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I have some very small experience with that. Like uh, my son went to this, you know, uh, ranch that was up on a mountain when he did his gap year out there. Well, we went out there several times. And when we went to visit it, let's say it was like April or May. And we were told, yeah, you know, you take a ride off the main road and you just kind of drive up this road for a long way and we'll meet you at the, you know, bunkhouse on the ranch. And that's how we met them. in let's say April or May. When we went out there a second time, it was like September, late September, and they were like, no, 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 you're not driving up the mountain. So trust me, we're going to meet you down at the bottom of the road. There ain't no way you're going to get up to, like, they didn't even, they're like, don't even try. You know, because, especially because you're from a different part of the world, you, you are never, you don't know how to drive on this road to get up the mountain. And uh, so there's an example, you know, I mean, Wyoming in the winter is a very different place than Wyoming Hey, man. Sorry about that. I think we had a bit of a technical glitch there. Yes. I don't I don't remember where I was. So you were you had told the story about trying to go up the road to you'd see your son at the ranch and then how they kind of laughed at you. And then they point about how different it was in Wyoming at different times of the year. Well, uh, hopefully when we in post, we'll. Maybe we can edit that and get the gist of the story anyway. I'm sorry if it's if it's a little choppy for folks when they listen to this. I don't know what else to say there. But um why don't we move on? I'm just gonna say a few things about her novel Accordion Crimes, and then we can kind of wrap it up. Does that sound okay? Cool. Yeah. And this is basically just us having our usual description, but I, I want to tell you and 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 by proxy our listeners a little bit about accordion crimes. So this is a I think a really fascinating idea for a book. And one of the things I'll say right out of the gate is any musicians out there who are listening to this, they might find this book particularly interesting because there's a lot in it about music. Obviously, from the title, you get some of that. But I didn't realize, um, you know, any Prue must have a a real interest in music and almost musicology or different, you know, musics coming from different cultures. Um, Because the, the gist of this novel, you probably realize this, but in case people don't know about it is that or the conceit of it is that there's an there's a an old accordion and she kind of follows its its passage from the old world from it actually comes from sicily 
and it comes over to the new world. And then what she does is she thought this accordion changes hands about six times in the book. And she follows that over the course of about a hundred years. And in the course of doing that, what you get is a really a fascinating look at basically the immigrant experience in the United States, you know, here in America. And you kind of, you know, the, the accordion, you'll get this whole passage about somebody who owns it and uh, like, you know, they'll, you kind of get the story of their life and how they use the accordion and how it changes hands. And then it'll like, in one case, it literally gets left in the back of a taxi by accident and someone else grabs it. And, you know, and then you get a whole other story. So I'm about halfway through this book and there are six different sections. So I just finished the third one. So literally halfway through. Um, but you, just to kind of, like you said before, wet your whistle a little bit. In the early going, this book kind of like, imagine this, if you tossed into a blender, some of the work of Cormac McCarthy and some of the work of Tim Gautreaux, a writer from Louisiana, oh, yeah. um, who, who's written about, you know, history in that region of the world. And then you, then you threw in, um, let's see, what was the third element? Um, at least in the, a couple of the opening sections, like a little bit of gangs in New York and kind of like, you know, uh, violence and kind of territorial disputes between different, you know, peoples in one particular region. And you threw in a, a hell of a lot of like folk music uh, and kind of like descriptions of, you know, jazz clubs and kind of juke joints and stuff like that. That's sort of what you throw all that into a blender. And that's kind of what this book is. And uh, it's really interesting. And, you know, I think in some ways it's, it's, it is kind of a predecessor to Barkskins in that Barkskins over the course of that long book, you get a group of many, many different cultures and peoples as they come to the United States or maybe they're indigenous. You know, in this book, the first three sections, the first one is about, you know, Italians basically emigrating, you know, or immigrating into the United States from Sicily. And it kind of follows their whole journey and their many tragedies and hardships and they end up in Louisiana. So you kind of get an immersion into what that was like at that time. And then the second section is about German immigrants in who are settling in Iowa and kind of they start from literally nothing and build some farms and kind of end up founding sort of a town out in the prairies of Iowa. And this accordion somehow goes up the Mississippi River and ends up in this town being played by German immigrants. So you kind of learn about their experience. And then the third section has to do with Mexican immigrants who are living in Texas. And so you get sort of immersed into their music and their sort of culture. And it's fascinating. You know, that's three totally different cultures in the first three sections of the book. And the only link is this, you know, old green accordion that was made over in the old world. It's just, it, it's really, it's, it's very rich. It's an interesting idea. There's, there are many great descriptions of making music and, uh, you know, sort of like what music means to people. And I'm, I'm just going to really quickly, I, I wanted to read this early section. It's not that long, but it gives you a flavor once again of how great her writing is, but also just kind of like sort of the rich stew of this book, you know, and this is, if you don't mind, and this is from the first section when this father and son, you know, make it through this memorable journey across the Atlantic and end up in New Orleans and this kind of, and they're looking for work. And this kind of describes how they find some work and sort of 
what it was like around the docks and uh, on the riverside there in New Orleans. So I'm going to read just a short section. Um, can you still hear me? Yes. So it just, you'll love this because it gives you just a flavor of, of, of how powerful and how vivid her writing is. So the, the father is called Graspo and his son is named Silvano. Graspo started then them unloading bananas, great green claws of fruit as heavy as stone, a brutal weight even for the accordion makers, muscular and broad shoulders. For 12 hours labor, the pay was a dollar and a half. Silvano tottered 20 feet with a hand of bananas, then went to his knees. He did not have the legs to bear such weight. Graspo put him at 50 cents a day to pick up loose bananas from broken bunches, crush the hairy tarantulas and little snakes that fell from the clusters of fruit. Silvano darted fearfully at them with his cudgel. The docks and levees stretched for miles along the river in a stink of brackish water, spice, smoke, musty cotton. Gangs of men, black or white, stacked bales of cotton into great piles like unfinished pyramids. Others rolled the bales over and over toward the ships whose funnels stretched into the haze distance like a forest of branchless trees. Two and two men piled sawed lumber, raw cities waiting to be nailed onto the prairies upriver. Teams of four black men double cut tree trunks into square timbers. Downriver, the shrimp boats unloaded baskets of glittering crustaceans. In the cavernous warehouses, men shifted more cotton, barrels of molasses and sugar, tobacco, rice, cottonseed cakes, fruits. They sweated in the cotton yards where the great bales were compressed into 500 pound cubes. Everywhere men carried boxes, rolled barrels, stacked firewood for the voracious steamboats, each allowing 500 cords of wood between New Orleans and Keokuk. So, I mean, that's just a, another example of just kind of how vivid her prose can be. And it just immerses you in this kind of roiling, sweating, it's thinking mess, but it's just so it just puts you there. It's just this book has been really interesting so far. I think you'd really, really enjoy it. I think I would too. And it's just uh, it's, it's so impressive. You got to know so much or be able to approximate knowing so much just to those first three sections alone you talked about with all those different cultures. And it seems like very of a piece with her writing, but also very different from her other books. It's just so impressive. You know, I, it's so hard to do that. You know, like, <laughs> you know, right. and and it just sounds like you said, it sounds really rich and you're just kind of there, you know, and uh, yeah. this notion of taking an old instrument and with all its beauty and grace and construction and all that and following it around as it changes hands through different cultures is just completely wild. Yeah, I agree. I thought you would just kind of I thought you personally would just really enjoy that. But. I think in the interest of time, I'm just going to, instead of taking a break, why don't we just wrap things up? Um, we'll talk really quickly about the next episode. Well, um, if we can just mention what we're reading next, if you have a book that you'd like to highlight that you're going to read next, go ahead. And then we'll just kind of wrap things up. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, so next up for me, I'm going to take just kind of a complete curveball. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, I get kind of giddily excited about. You know, I mentioned several episodes back that, you know, I, I, I like to kind of keep my eye out for sort of like cheap thrillers uh, and especially the kind of books that we grew up sort of reading. And we've talked here and there about Michael Crichton, you know, one of the great thriller writers from like the 80s and 90s. 
And I found a really old book of his called The Terminal Man from like the 70s about um, it's like about, you know, sort of uh, brain psychology and uh, these like brain scientists that are doing experimental surgery and they, you know, it's supposed to be really cutting edge, but then it goes wrong. And then somebody and the guy who's like, you know, operated on kind of goes nuts and, you know, like, and it's just this like scientific medical thriller that, you know, honestly, I can't wait to sort of into it because it's just kind of the kind of book that's really fun. And that Michael Crichton, who's deceased now, was just an expert at, you know, so I can't wait. I'm going to blow through it in like two days, you know, so that's the next book for me. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because he had that medical background and he sort of like made his name with sort of like either biological or kind of medical thrillers. You know? Yeah, I mean, I've put it in the words of the Washington Post in the blurb on the back. Michael Crichton makes the unbelievable believable. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, I, I, I kind of look forward to hearing what, what, how you react to that one because I know we both read it when we were like teenagers, but, you know. That's no, I've never read. I've never read this book. I've never read Michael Crichton. I've never read this, but it's it's it feels like the kind of book you turn to after you've sort of suffered through a Russian novel, you know, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's cool. And then just uh, real quick, what I'm going to be reading is is I, and I won't go into it now because it's it's some research for our next episode, so we can segue into that. Um, well, I'll just say our next episode, 47, is going. Jude already mentioned it once, but it's. Um, it, I don't know what the exact title is, but it's basically uh, novels, spiritual journeys in novels or in fiction. And it's going to be books, you know, fiction books that are in some way about, you know, sort of a spiritual journey that's taken by the main character or taken by characters in the book. And um, not quite a quest story, although there are common elements there. But, um, you know, books that can almost serve in some way as a as spiritual allegory and and the characters go through some pretty profound transformations of one way or another. But as with most of our topics, you know, there's going to be plenty of latitude as to how you want to define that and what you want to, may want to put in that. Case. But uh, one of the books that I know that's going to come up uh, in the discussion. So and I'm going to reread as my next read. And that's a book called Narcissus in Goldwyn written by Herman Hesse. If I'm saying that right from Germany, uh, it was a book that I read three or four years ago and was kind of blown away by absolutely loved it. And I remember just being my impression of that book and how much it struck me, but I don't remember a lot of the book. So I know I want to discuss it. And so I thought I would, I, it would be worth rereading. So I'm going to take that on again for a second time. And uh, yeah, so that's what I got coming up. And do you want to say anything about the next episode? Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think you summarized it well. It's, it's just going to be interesting to see where we take that, concept of the spiritual journeys into you know which fiction books we want to bring into that discussion that's going to be the interesting part of it but i think it'll be a, sort of a rich and kind of meaty topic so yeah and i think you know part of what makes that topic interesting is what i said before is that it you know you know we're not talking only like the pilgrim's progress by john bunyan you know this isn't like it, it, we're, we Christian spiritual allegory 101. I think there could be more ways you could take this and it's maybe more elastic of a topic than it seems. And so I think it's going to be an interesting and fun one to kick around. So that is what we have coming up for episode 47. And that is, I believe the end of this episode. Thank you for hanging with us. If you did, um, 
Dude, unless you have any parting comments, this is the end of the show. I do. You started with a cold, open reading. I'm going to, John, if you don't mind, spring on you. I'm going to close it, at least my part of it, with one one sentence from Annie Prue's work um, that, to me, is it... Did you say something? I said, great. I love it. Well, I think you I think you'll appreciate this. It's a great summation of her work in general, and it happens to be the very last sentence of the story Brokeback Mountain. So this is gonna be my last comment on her work, which is actually her words. So the sentence goes like this. There was some open space between what he knew and what he tried to believe, but nothing could be done about it. And if you can't fix it, you got to stand it. So that's Annie Prue. Well, there's your mic drop, folks. I have nothing to add to that. Let that linger in your mind. And thank you for joining us on the Book Exchange podcast. Thank you, guys.